Welcome to The Exam Room. I'm your host, Brian Vardabedian. I recently had the chance to talk to Chris Dancy, the most connected man in the world. He's the author of Don't Unplug, How Technology Changed My Life and Can Change Yours Too. While we all have a tendency to want to unplug and run from technology when it's overwhelming, Chris is an advocate for the intentional use of our tools. Rather than demonizing technology, we need to figure out where technology fits into a healthy flow. My favorite quote from the conversation, we don't know how to measure what we care about, so we care about what we measure. This is one of the most remarkable conversations to date in the exam room, and given the speed at which Chris's mind works, you're actually going to see a different part of me. It was really kind of fun. And honestly, this is really the kind of conversation I'm striving for in the exam room. So I hope you enjoy, and if you have the chance, do check out his book, Don't Unplug. For most consumers, the search for a healthcare provider is a frustrating maze of bewildering choices and unanswered questions. And they really want to hear what other patients have to say in order to make a decision with confidence. With Loyal's Empower Solution, you have the tools to do just that, empower your patients, the patient, and provide a solution, maximizing star ratings while introducing deeper insights into what patients really are saying about their experience. You could sort, approve, and publish patient reviews of physicians, services, and even practices using some of the intelligent features like auto-approval and syntax highlighting. To learn more, visit them online at loyalhealth.com. So Chris, welcome to the exam room. Thank you. So uh, should, t- I, should I should I put on a robe? <laughs> no, you're fine. Okay. You're fine. I have a picture I just took of you, and I think uh, I think uh, I'll, I'm going to put that on 33 charts. Everyone can see what you look like. But this is something I've been looking forward to for quite a while. Wait a minute. So you're going to use the picture of me in the middle of my house move <laughs> in a in a worn out shirt from the 70s and a good. ball cap? Okay. You look at a train okay. conductor. It's good. It's good. But thank you for thank you for being here. Tell, where does this 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 concept of the most connected man in the world come from? How did that start? Uh, 2012 did a story on Bloomberg video you can watch. I was probably about 250 pounds. I'd lost about 60 pounds at that point. And they referred, they were looking at all the technology I was wearing on my body. And Corey Johnson, who was the reporter at the time, said, and coming up next, we have the world's most surveilled person. And then that story came out. It was on video. I thought, oh, that's cool. I'm on TV, blah, blah, blah. And a couple weeks later, I'd done another news story. And then I got a call from the BBC. And the BBC had saw the Bloomberg story. And when the BBC did their story, they didn't say the world's most surveilled person. They said the world's most connected man. Okay. And from there, algorithms took over. So everybody picked up on that. It just became... It, it kind of defined you on a certain level, well, yeah, right? yeah, kind of was, yeah. And at that point, you were already deeply entrenched in the quantified self-movement. Is that right? At that point was probably year four. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we have a pretty sophisticated audience. I didn't tell you who listens, but we... I should have told you in the pre-show, but pretty much we have a bunch of, uh, bunch of ragtags. We got doctors. We got medical health communication professionals. We have e-patients, uh, a whole lot of different people, electronic patients, okay. uh, digital patients, that sort of thing. So um, quantified self-movement, for the people who haven't heard that term, can you sort of characterize it? Uh, it has its roots to uh, postboom.com, uh, uh, probably mid-2000s, uh, meeting at, uh, I think, Gary Wolf's house. 
Uh, Kevin Kelly too, right? Kevin Kelly, Gary yeah. Wolf, uh, first meeting. Uh, 2007, I think, was the first recorded meeting anyone's written about. And they're people who got together and said, you know, basically, I'm bored. How do I fix some problem in my life? And the mantra is three things. What'd you do? How'd you do it? What'd you learn? Right. What'd you do? How'd you do it? What'd you learn? Those right. are the three things. If you don't fit that model, you're not qualified self. And it had to be very, very prescriptive and very, very detailed. And the movement went and created literally meetings around the world. So early meet, most of Meetup in 2009, if you'd gone to Meetup in 2009, use the Wayback Machine. There was quantified self meetups. They weren't other like all sorts of meetups. Um, and yeah, it just kind of took on a life of its own. You know, obviously this was driven in part by mobile technology and sensors, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely at the time. But, but if, if you look at the, the real timeline of it, I mean, that's true. But basically, I mean, in that time, they were just bored techies. Yeah. I mean, they had basically programmed everything that we needed to construct the world we live in now a decade later, 2008, right? Right. So here we are a decade later. At that point, they were a decade in to their building. They were right. bored, so they worked on the human body. So I'll tell you, as a pediatrician, mothers are the original quantified selfers. I, I mean, they come in, they make graphs out of baby poo. They do all kinds of all kinds of stuff. I agree with you. You know, I'd always say... So this isn't really new. I mean, no, people are doing this, right? No, and I always tell people, right? as a 50-year-old gay guy, you know, I know a bunch of people who quantified self... Between 1988 and 1992, right. when we couldn't get drugs. You know, buyer's clubs and all that were just early quantified stuff. We experimented on ourselves. Everything. We were biohacking before there was even a word for it. With pen and paper. Oh, yeah. It's good stuff. Um, so you think really, you know, I go back to 2012 when I first heard about quantified self. Mm-hmm. I was at the Medicine X conference listening to Gary Wolf, uh, Paul Abramson, who's a a physician in the Bay Area who deals uh, with the quantified self-practice, and Christine Robbins, who founded uh, Body Media. And at the time, at Medicine X, quantified self was huge. I mean, everyone was talking about it. It was a lead panel. It seems like it's less talked about now. Why is that? Or is that my mind wrong? No, I think it's less. I mean, I still have a Google Alert set up, so I still get emails saying there's some quantified self. But usually it's just tech reporters who are usually over 30 who remember the term, who still use it in media. Most people don't know what it means. And to be honest with you, if you ask anyone under 30 that it was between quantified and qualified, they don't know. I mean, I think part of it's just the the actual words don't really make sense to everything is quantified now. So a quantified self, what doesn't make sense? Your phone is basically the quantified self. Right. Yep. I, there's not much difference between someone's mobile phone and their life. If you gave me a stranger's phone and they unlocked it, and I would look at their battery settings, their frequently used emojis, and possibly their screen arrangement, I could tell you where they worked, how they lived, who they're married to, what they're about. I mean, literally, I did, doctors don't even need to see patients. Just send your send your doctor your phone. Right. 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 So it, to, to me, I, I love the concept, but it's kind of dated. We haven't picked up on this whole idea that our phones are really part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. There was a study published in the Journal of Hospital Medicine about six months ago that looked at people after surgery picking up their phones and they measured how they were using their phones and used that as a criteria for discharge. Mm-hmm. Everybody was chuckling about it. I was mm-hmm. like, why is that funny? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it is a measure, right? Mm-hmm. And once we're once we're back into things and using our phones again, we're back to our ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you know, to me, the minute... Uh, YouTube takes over 11% of my time. I thought I'm heading toward a mild depression. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 9% YouTube for me is good. I'm so pretty happy. What's You said what? 9? 9% of my time on YouTube is pretty You spend good. a lot of time on YouTube, don't you? Yeah, well, because I consume massive amounts of information. So, And YouTube's one of the few places you can double speed things. Absolutely. 
I just didn't mention, I'm going to mention, I mentioned in the interview to our listeners that uh, Chris Dancy is the author of Don't Unplug, yeah. a book I just finished. And uh, uh, one of the things that was so remarkable about your book was the fact that it is so approachable and easy to read. I feel like I'm sitting here talking to you and the book is exactly like your voice. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, I didn't enjoy writing it because I was told to make it that way. And I really love a good mind play. And I couldn't know. I had to avoid all the mind trickery that I normally like to do with technology and health. That being said, I am glad it's approachable because more people are reading it. It's not too techy, but it's techy enough if you're deep into techy. I mean, I talk about RSS and, right. uh, and and scripting and all sorts of things. But it's also if you're into health, it's just healthy enough to be, okay, you guys actually not lying. And it's it's fun. I followed you as we suggested in the in the, in the pre-talk that uh, on Twitter you seem a little bit obtuse and a little bit a little bit odd on a certain level. Yeah. And had you made the book that way, it would have been it would have been a mess, I think. So your editor was smart. Well, that and I mean, you have to remember if someone pays you one hundred fifty thousand dollars to write a book of one of the six big publishers, yeah. like that happened to me. Yeah, I mean, they want to sell books. And the other thing is, it's just like you know. Books are just so weird nowadays just because I don't think the people who actually should be writing books are getting deals. And I think the people who, who are yeah. getting deals shouldn't be writing books. It's so funny about oh, it. Michelle Obama is the last person who needs a best-selling book. Right. No, yeah. We yeah, literally yeah. have her entire life documented. The 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 uh, publishing industry just is, is, is at a hard time with figuring out online influence as well. I remember about a decade ago, anyone with a blog got a big book advance, no matter who. Kind of blog. I got a big book advance because of my my Twitter following, the the obtuse (laughs) uh, prose you just mentioned. It doesn't make sense to me. It makes me really frustrated because I'm not a writer. I mean, mean, granted, I have an interesting story, but I'm not a writer. Well, anyway, the the book is wonderful. It's uh, Don't Unplug. Um, How Technology Saved My Life and Can Save Yours Too. Yeah. No, really, it's it's, uh, part of journey through uh, Chris's life and how he's come into um, his relationship with technology on a certain level, right? Yeah. Um, so back to this quantified self issue. Um, you have a doctor who's apparently very connected and very uh, unique. Um, one of the challenges that we, uh, I know, faced early on with the quantified self movement is patients were showing up to their doctors with these reams of information. And here you had this doc sitting in an office with these. Like Mitt Romney's binders of women? Well, yeah, something like that. Or sleep studies from the, what's the sleep uh, thing? Zio or? The Zio. Yeah, yeah, that you talk about yeah. in the book. So that's going back some time. What I mean, you does your doctor look at this stuff or how does that well, work? Well, no. So I was fired from my doctor who I had during kind of the rise of Chris Dancy. I don't I hate to even sound like <laughs> I'm cause like I'm a thing, like I'm a movie title. But like I have to like almost when you write a book, you almost have to fictionalize your life too. Yeah, right? you do. Because you can't write about yourself in any right. serious way. But um so yeah, he was fired because I did the same thing a lot of people do, which is I would go into him and say, I've got this this information about my life. The other thing that I, I got in a lot of trouble for with my doctor was in 2012, I went in and got 20 years worth of records and paid an Amazon Mechanical Turk to transcribe all of my records back from the very first visit I had. Whoa. This. Yeah. And then every single uh, blood result I had got put into spreadsheets, 20 years worth of blood results. And then when I would go see him, I would literally just instantly search my chart when he would tell me things and go, that's not true. And he would get really anxious. Um, so it was really kind of fun to um, watch that that process move along. It was nice because I then moved, so I had to find a new doctor, and that's when I found kind of my unicorn doctor now that's in Tennessee, Robert Beck. And, uh, you know, I found him, like a lot of people find him. I looked up a line. I found a picture. I then said, does he have a YouTube video? I watched him speak on yeah. YouTube. He's easy on the eyes. 
I figured it. <laughs> right? Yeah. I think who doesn't do that, right? Yeah, right. And then uh, the first few times we met, he thought it was in, and this was 2014. It was like, oh, it's really interesting. You have all this data. He really wasn't interested in it. And slowly over the last four years, he, you know, I'll, I tweet screenshots of my health kit and he tweets back advice. Cool. Do you think as a doctor of the future, I think he's really a unicorn? No, I think he's very normalized. I think unfortunately right now, in this past year when I saw him, so just three months ago when I had my annual physical, he literally saw me for the hour. Then he spent five minutes with just my phone. He made sure my do not text and drive was turned on. He made sure my ambient light sensors were set to nighttime mode. He did all of these things that were cybernetic in nature Mm -hmm. to make sure the whole patient, including the phone, was treated. And I thought that's when I knew we're safe. The future is not doomed uh, yep. There are people thinking that we are a symbiosis of these two things. Now, you did say annual physical. Did I hear correctly? So yes, I'm going to just go forward about 30 years. I think what's what's happening, if you look at your interactions with the healthcare system, they're very episodic. Yeah. Well, maybe not so episodic, but for the average person, they're episodic. You come in for your annual physical, yeah. you see your doctor, and then you go away. Yeah. I think increasingly, we're going to be connected in real time with our doctors, yeah. maybe like you are with your doctors or with our or with our Apple Watches, yeah. such that we're constantly having this dialogue and feedback on our bodies, and it's going to be almost like a I mean, you can go to data.christancy.com right now, data.christancy.com right now, and see me here. I mean, I'm a Data Truman Show, right? And this yeah. idea of like being this 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 constant relationship with my doctor is very real. But I think what most people can't get over is how real that is already, right? The the, the people who are controlling access to that information though are Apple. Right in in Android, and I think we have to be very very careful because we don't download apps; we download habits. And and doctors explain that. I said I heard that in your book. What does that mean? Well, th- th- if you think about the apps on your phone, they fall into Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the idea is there are certain apps you you use that are for you know kind of physiological safety, and then there are certain apps you use that are more about you know health and well being, and, and they go right up to the top to self actualization. Right? You know, no one's doing selfies on Instagram who isn't got some sort of set of principles. So if we if we pull out from that and we go, what are the habits? Well, Facebook isn't a social media app. It's a friendship habit app. It's like you, you learn to habitualize your friendships. You learn to manage them with software. You learn to connect. And there's nothing you can't do with Facebook that's not habitized. So when I say we don't download apps, we download habits, it's really about saying, what are the habits that are constructed around the different apps you use? Thanks so much for listening to this podcast on the Touchpoint Media Network. I'm Greg Matthews, the host of the Datapoint podcast. Datapoint is all about how data and analytics are driving healthcare innovation today and in the future. If you enjoy this podcast, I think you might want to give mine a try too. So when you finish up here, head on out to touchpoint.health and subscribe to the Datapoint podcast. You also want to check out some of the other great healthcare podcasts there as well. Have a great day and thanks for listening. You know, going through your book and seeing all that you do to measure the things in your environment, your sleep, your air quality, your sound, everything. Um, People are critical, obviously, of all this data that we collect and whether we can really draw meaning from it, right? Am I wrong? I mean, there's there are critics, correct? Well, they're they're hypercritical because, you know, there's this concept of we're in a world of big data and little wisdom. But the problem is people don't know the path between data and wisdom. So it's data, information, knowledge, wisdom. Right. So, so for me, it's really about finding – you can find meaning, but I think that where I made the biggest mistakes early on were I searched for meaning and not values. 
And when I say that, I mean, I, I nowadays, I, I say these are the five things I value in my life. I value talking to strangers. I value being physically and mentally active. I value being kind, right? So now once I decide those values, what are the behaviors and habits that make up those values? And I just measure that. And the minute those things go out of whack, that's, that I know it matters. Now, does that mean my weight fluctuates? Absolutely. Does that mean my sleep fluctuates? Absolutely. But like I had to come to terms with how do I want to die? And that's I, I want to die with values that I really believed in that were actionable. And your phone helps you do that. Absolutely. I get messages all day long that tell me all sorts of things like you're going to die in you know, this many years or I've, I've got a, some bizarre routine set up on my phone. I want to read uh, a quote from Nick Bilton, who used to write for the New York Times, and a rebuttal from Jay Parkinson, who is a, he's the founder of Sherpa, which is a messaging application for healthcare, neither here nor there. But anyway, Nick Bilton says, your next phone will have more sensors, heart monitors, and perspiration detectors for mood. Jay Parkinson said, and then after about a week or two of viewing yet another stream of data coming at you, the novelty will wear off and you'll go back to your normal routine. Data doesn't change behavior. If it did, Apple would be advertising the iPhone to us with stats about how the iPhone increases our productivity and our love life by 34%. Inspiration changes behavior. The brands and concepts that inspire us to pursue health and the good life give us a vision of what we should be doing and what we want to be. Hmm. I mean, I think that's what I said just now with values. So you agree? Yeah, well, it goes back to the mathematician. We don't know how to measure what we care about, so we care about what we measure. And, and that's so say that more slowly. Sure. I mean, it's, it's a mathematician, Richard Tapia said, we don't know how to measure what we care about. So we care about what we measure. Okay. And that was a big life changer for me. That was, a, that's when I moved from the quantified self to the qualitative self. Um, and it, you know, it goes along this very, very fine line of esotericism and philosophy versus raw numbers. And as I became increasingly aware of the judgmental nature of having numbers to measure everything from sleep to air quality, I became hyper aware of how horribly, horribly human I was at how I was going to weaponize everything to good or bad. I couldn't do anything without going, oh, this is bad. Anything. And the quantified self is exciting until everything is quantified. And then you face two things. First off, you have no free will because you realize you are in a big loop. Some things happen literally every year at the same moment. Some fights happen with the same people at the exact same time with the exact same conditions. Sometimes it's air quality and noise. Sometimes it's location. So patients weaponize data, right? Yeah, yeah. Tell me what when you say patients weaponize data, what what does that mean? Well, just well, I take I mean I have to go back. So I mean, if I think about in the eighties and the nineties when I first started gaming the medical system, it was really about like getting a PDR and like learning what's what drugs treated what things, but then learning the symptoms for those things. And then if I wanted a certain drug Right. I would go in and say, I have these symptoms and I knew that they matched up to certain things in the PDR. I mean, it wasn't hard to do. So but what I've noticed now is if patients want certain things from their doctor, they literally will measure specific things. So, you know, if they want sleeping, you know, sleeping pills, they'll suddenly start to measure their sleep and you can go in and edit your sleep. Your doctor's not going to look to see if you edited your sleep logs. They're just going to see the yeah. lack of sleep. Right. You know, if you're anxious, you download the app that shows your anxiety and you mark every time you're anxious, right? The real markers for anxiety, you're never going to be able to pick up because you don't record it when you're actually anxious. So, you know, I think that we're living in an age of, you know, weaponized information only because of how easy it is to screenshot what we consider to be our current state. Let's talk a little bit about technological determinism um, and being controlled by technology. Uh, this concept of determinism, of course, 
suggests that technology shapes who we are as opposed to us creating the technology mm. we need. Mm. Is technology driving us or are we driving technology? Well, symbiotics. I don't, I don't believe one's driving the other. I do believe we're at the point now where we are being more driven by technology. I was speaking to a friend the other evening and he was explaining something to me. I said, no, no, you're looking at this all wrong. Technology is programming people. People aren't programming technology. Uh, you know, everything from Fortnite to the Ice Bucket Challenge was an algorithmic human population programming, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Ice Bucket Challenge was the first time I ever observed kind of human programming at, at that level. Uh, and then I think the, you know, it then moved very quickly into Ferguson. What was the social dynamics, though? I mean, everybody was following in sequence with one another once they saw the Ice Bucket Challenge. Yes, I mean, that's absolutely that. But without the algorithms, it wouldn't have happened. So people responding to the algorithms created the, the, those kind of feedbacks. And then in the video, you call out someone else, right? right? So you had the both. To me, the Ice Bucket Challenge was the first time we saw the merger of man and machine, right? Because the, the algorithms would then put those at the top of your feeds, especially if you'd liked another one. And then if you got called out, you had the human component of it. And then you jump out to Ferguson and all the other things that have happened since then. I mean, I don't think there's actually any real proof that we're not merged at this point. You mean man and machine? Absolutely. So that's digital. Let's talk digital dualism here. Nathan Jurgensen from um, Snapchat, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, researcher. Researcher from Snapchat. And I think he's a... Curator of Theorizing the Web. Curator of Theorizing the Web and the founder of Cyborgology, which is an amazing site on sociology. But he suggested that it's becoming increasingly impossible to separate ourselves from the online space. There's uh, this bias where we see digital and physical as separate uh, realms and Frank Moss, former director of the MIT Media Lab, has kind of called this kind of a cross reality. Mm. Um, can we separate our personal and digital selves? Mm. No, no, no. And I've spoken at Media Lab about this. They're one and the same, or they really kind of they, they are absolutely one and the same. I mean, I think it'd be different if it was 2008 and we were having this conversation. I'd say a majority of people could very easily point out. But if I asked you, Dr. V, what did you do last Tuesday? You probably could think for a little bit and try to figure it out, but you wouldn't know a whole lot. But I, your phone knows exactly what you did last Tuesday. And that version of you, you constructed. I think if you're under 15 years old mm -hmm. today, you won't physically die, but you will f never actually leave. Right? There'll be right. enough information about you in the next 10 years. I just sometimes marvel at the fact that I'm probably the first human in cyberspace. I'm literally the first monkey candidate out there. <laughs> Right? Because I've got so much out You're there. You're a thing. I'm a thing. You're a digital out thing. There, right? My yeah. doppelganger is basically <laughs> living on the web right now. Yeah. And I don't try to separate it. I don't try to say, you know, I'm offline and online. And I think a lot of the polarization that's happening right now comes be because we are looking at people going, why aren't you paying attention to me? And I feel like if, if I'm using my phone and you're mad at me because I'm not paying attention to you, you have the attention problem. You need it. Okay. You need it. Because if I'm using my phone in 2018, there's there's a really good chance I'm dealing with a family member, an employer, or a money issue. All three things everyone is struggling with in 2018. And suddenly, would, would, would it be any different if one of those three members of the people were standing next to me demanding my attention? Let me tell you something really funny. In our exam rooms, up until about five years ago, we had these horrible... These, these pictures in black and white of a Motorola, yeah, what was it, phone. StarTac, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it said, please don't use phone in the exam yeah. rooms. And I was like, that's how young mothers connect. Yeah. That's how they see their yeah. questions. That's how they yeah. 
mothers are recording what's happening in the exam room, and it's like it's so dated. The fact that we well, you know, historically, like when I went to the doctor, like you guys can record everything about me, but I'm not allowed to. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm not allowed to. Like I literally have to get permission to get my records. Oh. Yeah, that's like Fitbit. Up until last year, made you spend a hundred dollars a year to buy your data from them. That's like Nike saying you're going to pay me every time you run. <laughs> no, I own the shoe, Nike. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I, the whole digital dualism. I think it's it's one of these things that it's 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 really ugly right now. You know, families. You know, no tech at dinner. You know, uh, restaurants. You know, no tech in line. But do you think there's any merit? Is there any merit to? truly doing this unplugging do you think there's any is there any role or place for that or you think it really just doesn't that's I think such a dated a idea for i think there absolutely is a place for it the problem is we don't have enough nuanced conversation about the power of what we're using our technology for yeah if we were honest about i can't afford to be without my phone because i'm worried about my kids and my job and my home then i'd say yeah take a weekend off but the fact you have to pretend that you can put your phone down to be more human what you you can hold both thoughts at the same time? You know what kind of a cognitive dissonance, technological cognitive dissonance, are we creating with people? We can't simultaneously have a culture that's saying your phone is ruining you, and then and at the same time we're saying you need your phone to live. It is so toxic what is happening right now, and I'm surprised we're not writing about it every day. But instead, every day we write about. Your phone is doing this, and this big company did this with your data. We're not instead of writing about you could be doing this with your data. You and your family could be communicating this way with your phones. So we have to be intentional is what you're saying, Absolutely. Right? That's what, as intentional as owning a car. That's what Don't Unplug is about, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, listen, if you don't measure you, someone else will. Say that again. If you don't measure you, someone else will. Yeah, there you go. I love that. I mean, it's, it's what's happening. I, so I got these friends, these doctor friends, and they do this dramatic thing. They unplug for the weekend. Well, it's kind of a content strategy. Then they come back and they report what it was like mm. to be unplugged. And it's, mm. it's, 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 it's all this drama with it. And it's just... How quaint. <laughs> you know, my mother used to drive to Lancaster and buy bread that women in hoods would, you know, the handmaiden's <laughs> tail would bake. Right? It didn't make her less of a modern woman. It didn't make them more modern. How analog. Right? It's just, I'm so tired of the right. judgment that comes with unplugging. When you unplug, you're basically saying, I have enough money to ignore the world for a weekend. Good for you. You've got too much money, not too much of attention deficit. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, you said this is, your phone is a gateway to a world of distraction or awareness. Mm. What does that mean? Well, I mean, I use my phone both ways. I mean, uh, distraction's pretty obvious. A lot of people get lost on their phone. I'm pro-distraction, especially if you're struggling. Uh, but, you know, there are Wait, time- you're pro- I'm pro-distraction. If you want to be distracted, get distracted. Okay. If you want to get lost on Fortnite for two days, do it. If your kids are not paying attention, let them, right? The, <clears throat> the organism is self-correcting, right? Yeah. Ask any scientist. The organism is self-correcting, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to come back online. But this, what we can't correct is the pain caused from telling someone they're no good from doing something that might be not beneficial. That being said, I think it can also be a word of enlightenment. You take something like screen time, right? Just go to Twitter right now. Stop listening to the podcast. Go to Twitter, go to search, and look up sc- hashtag screen time. You'll see thousands of people tweeting screenshots of their phone use asking if it's good or bad. Really? I've never done this. Is this true? Oh my gosh, yes. I, do, I love it. I, I love looking at other, how other people live their lives. And I think it's so interesting. If, if I would have told you 10 years ago, someone would be taking pictures of their life and putting them out to strangers in public saying, rate me. And that's what we're doing. 
right? But people are so hungry to know who they are, they're willing to outsource their most intimate metrics. It's sad in a way, no? Well, it's it's the new authenticity. Look how look how look how. I mean, everybody wants to be Amy Winehouse on the Rhine phone for five minutes. Right? It's just I get it. You know, look what happened to her. Come yeah, on. yeah. You're a train wreck with with Snapchat. All right, but that's not going to get you any more followers. Douglas Rushkoff, <laughs> Present Shock, one yeah. of your favorite books. Yeah. I know, genius book. He says will not be understood for another ten years. I love Rushkoff. We talked about that beforehand. Uh, but he says this, for while digital technology can serve to disconnect us from the cycles that have traditionally orchestrated our activities, they can also serve to bring us back into sync. I, kind of I what mean, you're saying, right? I mean, I mean it's not... My watch is nothing but either a health face or, or an earth face. So there's my health face, there's my earth face, right? So, you know, again, whether it's the solar cycle, the lunar cycle, the global cycle, or where we are around the sun. I'm staring at his watch right now, just alive. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I agree with it, but I meant... Uh, Natural cycles, you know, external cycles, the three-day moon cycle or the, you know, the the solstice, the equinoxes, those are real things that really help our bodies attune to those. If you're in front of a screen a lot, you need some way to sync to that. Apple does it for you with adjusting the uh, night shift on the phone and the laptop. Uh, I mean, all these things are cybernetically linked now. I mean, they're installing habits into us. So it's exciting. Sorry, that was my heart rate monitor. Oh, is that? Oh. <laughs> um, so... Here's the thing. What I love about you, what I love about Don't Unplug, mm-hmm. is the idea that you are, um, you kind of show us how to be very intentional with our digital tools. Mm. I think so many of us feel like we have to fit in sync with what our tools are. Good example is you, you talk about audiobooks at half and double speed <laughs> used for different purposes, yeah. right? I mean, these are kind of hacks. Your mind hacks. Yeah. So you listen to an audiobook on three quarters speed, you'll fall asleep like really quick because your mind sinks to the speed of the, to the voice and you fall asleep instantly because your mind can't think right. fast. Double speed if you want to keep, if you really want to pay attention to something because your mind has to actually actively listen. You know, that's so fascinating. Yeah. So t- tell us about that double speed again. You say it, it allows us to so you, focus better, if, right? If you're listening to a book and you find yourself multitasking, listen to it on 1.25 speed or 1.5 speed, you will not multitask because you can't. It's going too fast. You have to pay attention. So you'll get the book done and you'll actually learn more. That's fascinating because if you, you look at medical students over the past five years or so, they're listening to all their tapes at double speed. Oh, are they? I didn't know that. Yes. Uh, okay. And so in medical school, so it used to be you, you went and sat in an amphitheater and listened to some guy with white hair talk. Yeah. So the medical students skip class yeah. and they go and they find these underground tapes and yeah. they learn on their own at, yeah. double, at double speed. Yeah. They're all double speed. You watch them. It's like, and oh, maybe that's the reason. I'm well, programmers listen to podcasts at double speed. I mean, that's where I stole it from. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I, you know, there are books that'll play or apps that'll play books at five speed. I mean, that's, that you can go crazy fast. But, you know, the mind is the coolest thing you'll have, much cooler than the body. You know, the body can fall apart. The mind can still be kind of like, I'm down. Let's keep going. You're like, no, yeah. sorry, we got to go. You said this in, uh, in Don't Unplug. You said technology is advancing faster than our values. Mm. What, is that? what does that mean? Well, it's, it's a heavy, it's a heavy, heavy thing. I'm That's very heavy. It's very heavy. I mean, I know what it means. I'm just sort of throwing yeah. you throwing No, you the problem is, I, I think about it this way. If you go to someone's Facebook profile today, especially a younger person, and I'm not marginalized because I see older people with this too. And you look at their profile photo. You know, you click on the profile photo. No millennial shaming. No millennial shaming. And you click next and next, next. Most profile photos, at least the ones I'm exposed to, are like wrapped tragedies. We are Orlando. We are this shooting. We are this disaster. You know, all these mm-hmm. filters. 
And what I've noticed over the last five years is our values have been tied to the technological trends of the time. And we're allowing our belief systems to be co-opted by corporate America, right? So if we want to support AIDS, we buy red products. If we want to support our charity, we go to Smile Amazon, right? And I think what's happening is the technology is moving so fast, our values are chasing it. So we look to technology and these companies to define what we value instead of saying, this is what I strive. You know what I mean? So I'm like, yeah. who are the people that have my values? No, no, we're saying these things are being sold to me. Do they have my values? You know, we're almost value shopping now. And, you know, it's interesting. You know, oh, it's a very, very provocative. Yeah. Uh, and I sometimes worry a little bit about, I mean, you know, maybe that could be awkward in the future. Because, I don't know, I don't want to have coupons based on my religious beliefs, but I think we're heading there. In medicine, in medicine, we're advancing kind of technology advancing faster than our our ethical debates over these tools and whatnot. Yeah. It's kind of the exact same thing. I say it all the time to... to well, I mean, them. doctors are the original hackers, right? I guess. Yeah. Uh, you know, long before we had like computer hacking, we had... And doctors will be the next hackers. Michael DeBakey was stitching together fake valves on a sewing machine and things like that. I mean, that's you can't get cooler than that. So one of the big things, just to talk about doctors on social media, when we were first there in the early 2000s, certainly as bloggers, we were all anonymous. Yeah. So docs were all afraid yeah. if they had an opinion, they were going to get in trouble. Yeah. And then when Twitter came around in 2008, we had this age of anonymity and everybody was anonymous, all the docs. You rarely see an anonymous doctor. Is it? Do you think anonymity is dead online? Is it possible to be anonymous in terms of identity? Well, first of all, I don't believe in privacy. So let's just get that out of the way. If you read my Twitter profile, it says I'm post-private. So post-privacy just... You're post-private. I'm post-private. I, I believe that. I'm after privacy. Okay. Well, only because I've been someone who made a, you know, half a million dollars a year, and I've been someone who's made no money and been homeless. I've been both extremes in 50 years. I mean, you read me the book. I talk about my parents being homeless. Like, it's, right? it's all in the book, people. It's all in the book. No, but the point is this. When I had a lot of money, I didn't think about privacy. And when I had no money, I didn't have any. So privacy is literally a middle-class condition. You don't have the concept of privacy in third-world nations. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist. It's not even a word for it. Right. Right? And in very affluent people, they don't talk about it. They talk about safety a lot, but not privacy. Well, small villages, I guess, in Africa, people are very open, and that's how well, we... what sort of hide. But so, so my point about anonymity is I think anonymity is going to become something truly for the elite. Because uh, to be able to be... You know, Andy Warhol famously said everyone's famous for 15 seconds in the future. And I believe everyone in the future will be anonymous for 15 seconds, right? Because people right now are dying, literally, kids are literally walking on the sides of mountains to trend and be famous. Like, what is the virility of things? World Star, not something else I encourage you to look up. Look up World Star. Kids are literally orchestrating and coordinating giant fights so everyone knows when to pull out their camera and film them so they have multi-angles so they can stitch them together in a little movie, right? So this kind of group identity, this emergent belief system, that's coming from the need to be unanonymous, not just anonymous, but like risen to the top. To me, medical doctors are where I really, you know, I hate because I'm talking to you. I really hate to even think about it because first off, you guys should be vocal. You should be public. But we have too many doctors, Dr. Oz. You know, I don't even want to go through all of these kind of celebrity doctors right. and celebrity medical personnel who I think, you know, again, I hate it. I just don't like it. Yeah, it's a it's a sequela or a side effect of uh, democratized media. Yeah. So we have a lot of physicians. I think a lot about credibility and authority. Uh, so you take credibility and authority and balance that with influence. A lot of influential people, some physicians that really don't 
they don't have a lot of credibility online. And so uh, finding that balance is really, I think... Uh, and they must struggle. I mean, I don't... I mean, I know accountants who are struggling to be influential online. Dude, just do the books. Right? <laughs> Literally. I mean, I just... It's so sad. But listen, you Mommy talk- bloggers. You, they ruined us in 2009. Oh, that's right. Um... Do you remember the mommy bloggers, how they were they were in cars, like, selling Ford Motor Company? Was giving them, remember that? They were giving oh, them I cars, know. and they were taping, oh, I'm in a car now. We went from, from pink cars for cosmetics to mommy blogger cars to MLM. My neighbor literally has a, here in Spring, Texas, my neighbor has a sign on her door that says no solicitation, but she has no qualms about sending me a, a, a message on Facebook to buy oils from her. So, again, digital dualism. Don't talk to me about shilly stuff you want to buy in real life, but I'll sell it to you online. <laughs> You know, I just feel like saying, do you realize how silly you look? Wow. Chris Dancy, author, Don't Unplug. Yeah. It's a, it's a fresh look at things. Information overload. Let's talk about information overload. This is one of the biggest things I think that doctors are going to face in the 21st century. We're facing this crisis of information and knowledge, and yet we don't know how to process it. I think human, human, human filters are going to be critical, but do you think we're facing an information overload or a Clay Shirky said we're, we're, we have filter failure, not information overload. What do you think about that? I mean, again, uh, my Twitter is pretty clear. I've, uh, I believe we, the filters are working perfectly. I think they're working too good. I think people are bored. I think the information has been curated almost too good. I mean, that's what polarization is. It's really good filtered information, right? Uh, What's, wait, polarization? What do you mean by that? Polarization, filter bubbles. Oh, yeah, okay. Right? So, yeah, yeah I mean, a filter bubble couldn't exist if there wasn't a good filter. Right. I right? got you. Yeah, hey, yeah. if you think there's information overload, we wouldn't have some of the politics we do now. So we don't have information overload. We do have information polarization, but that's different than information overload. Um, you know, I think we have a crisis in diversity of information. I use a, a web uh, specific web search tool that allows me to see hits that are like not like against my popular opinion. Uh, I try to use anonymous browsing as much as possible to be unbiased. But to me, I think if you're not actively trying to unbias what you see online, you're not doing you're not being a good digital citizen. If you're taking whatever the online offers you, you're basically a, a mental gluttonous pig. People don't quite understand that Google is an advertising platform, not a search engine, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, literally, they have a button on the front screen that says, I feel lucky. The only <laughs> other person who says that is a prostitute. <laughs> Listen, any, any other closing thoughts that you would say, Chris? Uh, this book was wonderful. It was an amazing journey through your, uh, through your, digital, uh, your digital life and, and uh, how you've come to be the most connected man in the world. What would you say in closing? I think there were three things that are really important to me that were kind of the big takeaways from the book. You know, the first one was you don't get better by counting steps. You get better by taking them. The second one was um, we don't know how to measure what we care about, so we care about what we measure. Mm-hmm. And and uh, the last one is we need to stop valuing our schedules and start scheduling our values. And those three things between how we count things, uh, the value we place on them, and what we do with our time are so important. And you don't need a lot of technology to think and be provocatively uh, direct in what you want and what you value. Uh, And if you don't decide those things, someone else will for you. And I want people to make those decisions. Well, it's a powerful, mind-bending read, and I really appreciate your being here. (laughs) Where can people find out more about the book and you? Well, you can literally Google most connected. That's That's right. That's my favorite thing to say. In like 31 countries, you can just Google the term most connected and all the languages too. I come right up. Or um, the book is just Don't Unplug. You can find me online, Chris Dancy, at Chris Dancy. 
I've got a website, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. You know what? You can just call me. 720-936-9192. Strangers call me all the time. My my phone number's on my website. And I just say, you know, if you're struggling, you're depressed, or you don't know what you want to do for a job, or you're super happy and you need to be brought down a notch, call me. I'll sort you out. Man, they broke the mold when they made you, man. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. B. Listen, thanks for being here, and uh, we need to have you back again. Thanks. This show is made possible in part by the Social Health Institute. Through research and partnerships with healthcare organizations around the country, the Social Health Institute explores new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategy. To learn more about the Social Health Institute, visit them online at socialhealthinstitute.com. That's socialhealthinstitute.com. Thank you for joining us in the exam room. If you like what you heard here, please rate the program, review us, or let folks know about us. And if you have any really cool ideas that you'd like discussed here, please feel free to let us know. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.